Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Since, and I'm your host, as always, Seamus. Sorry for the hiatus, I was gone on a vacation. I went back to the homeland, back to Ireland, um, where I hailed from originally. Uh, the rest of my family is out that way, and haven't been able to visit them since the whole pandemic had happened, so it's been a while since I've actually seen them. Um, but I'm back. I have the microphone, as you can tell by the drastic increase in the sound quality from the last episode. And I'm ready to begin where we left off in Mark chapter 3. Uh, we're going to start in verse 7. So, once again, for those of you who might just be joining us, this is going through a, a commentary in Mark from the historian's perspective. Uh, you can get plenty of commentaries from a theological perspective. We don't, although we do talk about theology uh, here and there a little bit in our episodes, uh, but mostly from the historical perspective. We don't actually um, de develop a theological doctrine here, so to speak, unless it's relevant to the history, in which case then we'll go into it. But uh, so in today's episode, we're going to do our best to get through chapter three in a half hour. <laughs> so, uh, we may be skipping certain details over, um, and I may do an epilogue if we do something like that, but I'm going to do my best to work through it as, uh, as well as I can without uh, leaving out any really super big details. But, uh, of course, there's a lot of small stuff in this particular chapter, and I think it would be tedious to go over every tiny little thing. So uh, I'm just going to sort of hit the bigger points um, and then maybe epilogue some of the tinier details later on if you're interested let me know in the comments if you are all right so verse 7 chapter 3 again i'm reading from the tree of life version yeshua withdrew to the sea with his disciples and a large crowd from the galilee followed from judea and from jerusalem and from idumea i think is how you say that <laughs> and beyond the jordan and around tyre and sidon a great number hearing all he was doing, came to him. He told his disciples to have a small boat ready uh, because of the crowd so that they would not mob him. Uh, it's an interesting choice of words that they chose uh, mob. Um, more or less, uh, he just doesn't want to be overcrowded. Now, there's a few reasons for this. Uh, one is he probably enjoys a little bit of personal space, as we all do. So I'm sure some of us can relate. I myself uh, identify as 40% introvert, 60% <laughs> extrovert, but um, that, that not not just that he has a sense of wanting for some personal space. Uh, again, his I, I've, I've said before on on these episodes, his pr primary mission is actually to teach, not to heal, and with him having healed so many people, he's becoming a very popular healer. And that's not his primary mission. Uh, the healing is more just as a proof of the authority given to him as, as his agency, as a son of God, right? But he has a message. He's trying to teach something. He's trying to, trying to get a message out there. And that's his primary focus. 
uh, but people are more interested in being healed than they are in hearing a message, and he's trying to avoid uh, being bombarded with just healing and not being able to actually get any, any time to teach or preach the kingdom of heaven as it is about to come, right? Which is the primary focus, so. Uh, and then part number two, uh, something also to note. Being touched in Judaism is risky business, right? Uh, there's all sorts of laws surrounding clean and unclean, and unclean can be transmitted uh, much like a virus. Uh, you can you can inherit you can just get being unclean from somebody who sat on the same couch as a as a female who is undergoing nida uh, or her menstrual cycle, right? So uncleanliness can be transmitted. It can be passed on through touch. Uh, this is also true with with uh, the leprosy or the quote unquote leprosy, uh, which I've covered in a previous episode. So. With him being touched on all sides uncontrollably, it risks his uh, purity, his state of purity. And there's actually a very heavy emphasis on ritual purity in this time, uh, which is why baptisms become very popular around this time. Uh, even, Even if you're not going to the temple, there seems to be a sense of an obsession, uh, archaeologically speaking, um, we've seen that there seems to be an obsession with ritual purity regardless of whether or not you're going into the temple complex. Now, originally, the state of ritual purity only really applies to the temple complex. Uh, if you find yourself in a state of uncleanliness, it's not you're not a sinner. It's not a sin to be unclean. It just means that you are not able to approach the Shekhinah at the temple mount, right? You're not, you're not able to get close to God. Your uncleanliness will be the death of you. Um, you'll be consumed, right? And, and that's, that's the worry. And uh, in Second Temple period Judaism, there is an obsession with this cleanliness regardless of where you are. Uh, that it is a physical state that also is a reflection of a spiritual state. And that your soul and your body are bound together. And so if you find yourself in a state of uncleanliness, you are essentially making your your temple which is your body more profane or dirty and and that's not ideal so that that was the common teaching that's the common mindset at the time so being touched uh in judaism is risky business so for him to constantly be being touched he now yeshua seems to not really care so much about being in a state of ritual and cleanliness uh when he touches the leper and he heals him he would actually become unclean from that process um, but there, there's still like a limit, right? Yeshua didn't live in a vacuum. He uh, is very much a part of the culture um, that he is in, especially from the historical standpoint. If you read this as a strict historian, what you see here is a rabbi who is worried about his particular sense of cleanliness um, because of the crowd, right? That's one possibility, just strictly from the historian's perspective. Um, so... Moving on from that, um, verse 10, For he had healed many, so that all those afflicted fell down before him in order to touch him. Right, So we just touched, uh, talked about this touching. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, would fall down before him and cry out, You are Ben Elohim, or you are the Son of God. Um, but Yeshua strictly ordered them not to make him known. Uh, the them in this case would be the people 
um, right? It's not directly tied to the the unclean spirits calling out to him. Uh, and I believe I've covered previously already why Yeshua seems to pull attention away from him by telling people not to talk about the miracles or the healings, uh, by telling them to keep quiet. Uh, once again, the political climate at this time. Anyone who claims to be the Messiah um, is essentially claiming to be Messiah son of David, which is a conquering king. And that is treason under Roman occupation. Uh, and so Romans would treat messianic figures as treasonous rebels. Uh, and, and quite often they were rebels. Uh, just about every messianic claimant in this time period uh, were zealots, and they had essentially started a revolution that ultimately failed. Uh, it gets to the point where, uh, when we fast forward to Acts, right, uh, just before Stephen gets stoned, um, Gamaliel informs the rest of the Sanhedrin, and he basically says, hey, you know, if, if this is not of God, then it will fizzle out and die like the rest have. Uh, and Gamaliel speaking from, from the historical perspective, right, there have been many messianic claimants, and they get, assa uh, they get killed, um, sentenced to death by the Romans as a rebel, as a treasonous rebel, and then the movement dies. Um, and then Gamaliel goes to say, but if this is a movement of God, then you might find yourself fighting against God, right? So Gamaliel's taking a middle ground, which is very Pharisaic of him, by the way. The Pharisees were very middle ground people. Um, they were politically neutral for the most part. Uh, and of course, the zealots were very uh, national, um, very, well, zealot. <laughs> uh, and so the, the fear here is that uh, Yeshua is not coming as the Messiah, son of David, yet. Right? He's not the, um, the conquering king. He's, he's coming here as the suffering servant. But people are expecting a conquering king. So if, if people go around saying that he is the Messiah, son of David, or B'nai Elohim, uh, excuse me, uh, Ben Elohim, son of son of God. Uh, the Romans are going to start to see this as a uh, uprising, as a zealot movement, and Yeshua seems to try and remove himself from being a zealot. Not not in totality, right? He actually has two zealots uh, as disciples, um, Sh uh, Shimon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, which is who who was also a zealot. He was one of the Ish. Ishkariot zealots, a different, basically a subsect of the zealots, more or less. Um, the Sicarii, I believe is how, yeah, they were called the Sicarii zealots. But anyway, um, so yeah, he's, he's trying to not be mistaken for a an uprising. And again, actually, when he, when, uh, if we were to fast forward, we, we go to Yeshua's trial, and the Romans execute him uh, by crucifixion, which was a style of uh, the death penalty reserved primarily for uh, rebels. Treason. Okay, so uh, it's mostly because the, the way Yeshua answers certain questions at his trial, um, you know, and then again, uh, he gets... They nail the sign above him, um, and it says, you know, the king, right, king of the Jews. This is a treason. So they're mocking him, and they execute him as a rebel, mocking him to be a quote-unquote king, right? So 
there's there's a, there's a lot of culturals a lot of the historical context is a huge political environment that's happening um there's been plenty of messianic figures in the past leading up to this and the romans have been doing their best to squash any um rebellions right to to discourage this kind of activity so if these people go out and they do this with yeshua quite often it would be mistaken for a zealot movement and that's a bad thing right it's not yet time so that's primarily the reason why he keeps telling people to not make make him known and his actions known uh might get the wrong idea so verse 13 now he climbs up on the mountain and calls to those he himself wanted and they came to him. He appointed twelve, whom he had also named emissaries, uh, or apostles, for the Greek, shaliach, uh, in the Hebrew. Um, plural would be shlichim, shlichim, yeah, shlichim. Uh, so they might be with him, and he might send them to proclaim the good news. Uh, emphasis on send them, because shlichim, the sent ones, right? Shaliach is agency language. This is somebody that you send out this is a delegate like you you delegate power to somebody as an authority figure you give somebody a piece of your authority and you send them out to perform some sort of mission um the greek word apostolos holds this very same uh agency type meaning to it uh, so shiliach that's what this is is essentially he's he's uh ordaining them to be his agents to represent him Um, and verse 15, and to have power to drive out demons. And he, verse 16, and he appointed the 12 to Simon, he gave the name Peter. To Jacob and his brother John, the sons of Zebedee, he gave the name, um, I'm not even going to pronounce, try and pronounce that. It means, uh, the sons of thunder, uh, is the translation. Um, <laughs> and Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, Jacob, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judah from Creote, who also betrayed him, or Ju Judah the Iscariot. And uh, so they've actually smoothed the translation over here. The original Greek, Simon, uh, it's, it reads Simon the Canaanite, which is not correct, actually. It, it's from the Hebrew Kanana, which means Zealot. Um, and Luke actually corrects this translation. Luke recognizes the word, he corrects it in his, and he makes it Simon the Zealot. Uh, and in Mark, uh, it was translated as Simon the, Simon the Canaanite, uh, which is not correct, um, but it's likely a scribal error. Um, and it should be, because it's, again, the Hebrew um, word is kanana. So it may very well have been a transliteration in the original Greek, and then the scribe must have thought that it meant to be Canaanite. And so... Um, there's there's a slight mistake there so it's corrected here in my translation it says zealot it should be zealot um is very likely a transliteration for the word zealot kenana and then judas from creote um or the iscariot uh sicarii the the other zealot essentially who also betrayed him so these names uh are more or less nicknames i've actually got a, a list here some of them are funny actually um yeshua was a man with a sense of humor <laughs> so i'm gonna read to you these names and uh kind of what they mean here 
right? So Shimon Kepha or Simon Peter, he's the rock, right? So Simon the rock, essentially. Andrew, son of Jonah. Uh, James, he was nicknamed the big son of Zebedee. Uh, every one of these apostles had nicknames. Uh, well, not every single one of them, but most of them had nicknames. So James the Big, John the Beloved. Then there's Philip, Nathaniel, Bartholomew, Judas, Thomas. He was called the Twin. <clears throat> Matthew, the tax collector. James the Little. Right, so we have two James, James the Big and James the Little. So that's probably how they distinguished from one another. Um, Judas Thaddeus, uh, his his nickname is a term of endearment, uh, the same kind of term of endearment that a grandmother would give to a grandson. And so, the best translation for this is actually something along the lines of. Lovekins, <laughs> which I find uh, incredibly hilarious. He must have been a very baby-faced uh, kind of uh, disciple <laughs> to give him such a name. Uh, Simon the Zealot, uh, a warrior man, and then of course Judas uh, the Sicarii, um, which Sicarii um, is the name of a dagger. It's a, the sickle-shaped weapon that was common for the, uh, the zealots to use. And so sometimes uh, you could translate this as, as dagger man or knife man or something like that. Um, but it's of the Sicarii uh, zealot movement. So essentially, um, you have two zealots of the 12 disciples, two of them. Are zealots Now, the, the zealots, uh, for those of you who may or may not know, essentially we would liken them to a domestic terrorist more or less it, it might be a little extreme to call it like a terrorist um but it, it it's more like maybe militia is probably the better word for it um they were anti-roman occupation the pharisees were very neutral on it they enjoyed uh being in the middle party they didn't like to rock the boat uh one way or another too hard uh romans offered a sense of protection and of course, there there is a sense of um, a sense of you know uh, what's the word for it discrimination I guess is the word uh, oppression. There's the word. I promise I uh, I promise I went to college. <laughs> there's a sense of oppression that is there, but um, they they sort of sat in the middle. It was they were going to try and solve this problem very diplomatically. The Pharisees were a lot more political. Uh, in their movement, and they were they were much more diplomats trying to reason uh, their way into a more free and secure um, Jewish state. Uh, and so, and the zealots were not uh, satisfied with this type of um, dealings with the Romans, and so they were more or less constantly starting these small uprisings. Eventually, uh, this will actually culminate in the first Jewish war, which is 66 67 uh i think is when it starts about 66 a.d uh it basically ends in 70 a.d at the destruction of the second temple um technically it fully comes to an end at masada which is a, a year later uh masada is the final stand which by the way uh the Iscar the sicarii zealots were the last standing zealots at masada the battle of masada for those of you who are interested, 
the siege of Masada is actually an interesting topic. Uh, I would YouTube some videos uh, going over the siege of Masada. It's very interesting. And also while you're at it, the siege of Jerusalem is incredibly interesting. That's that's just me though. <laughs> Moving on. Um, and I know we said we try to get through as much as possible in 30 minutes. It's looking like this will be our last paragraph. So uh, let's hit this. <laughs> then he comes to a house and again... A crowd gathers so that they couldn't even eat. When his family heard about this, they went out to take hold of him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Uh, okay, I, I think that's more or less, uh, they're just you know, like, what is he doing? He's crazy. Uh, <laughs> um, why, why would the writers include this small detail? Uh, keep in mind, pen and paper and ink are incredibly expensive commodities back then, and so putting in minor details to us might not seem super important because we take advantage of it, but back then, if it was included, it had to be important, basically. Otherwise, it was a waste of ink, which is an incredible waste of money and space uh, for the more valuable information. So why is this included? Um... To be honest, that's much more of a theological answer, I think, as long as you understand that that's the historical reason for developing a theology from this particular passage. Um, but uh, there, there seems to be a sense of his family doesn't quite understand who he is. And this is thematic of the book of Mark. Um, Mark's theme, you're going to discover as we do this, is that people do not understand who he really is. That's... If I had to pick a theme, that's Mark. I, and actually, um, Bart Ehrman, uh, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, has quoted with saying uh, that he would thematically say that the whole point of the book of Mark is that people don't understand who he is, and so he's trying to explain it. Uh, so one of the leading New Testament scholars of our day would agree on, on the theme that I have chosen for Mark, more or less. So, this is just a, an implication of that, right? People, even his own family, don't seem to quite fully understand who Yeshua really is, uh, and that's why this is included. Now, theologically, you can gather what you will from that. Verse 22, The Torah scholars who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons he drives out demons. Uh, quick thing on Beelzebub, uh, I believe it's... Zohar or Talmud, one or the other. Um, he is the chief demon, uh, primarily the worst, mostly because he is the uh, demon of idol worship. So he's sort of the worst, right, in Judaism. Um, he called them and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. Uh, but no one can enter a strong man's house to, a ra to ransack his property unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he will thoroughly plunder his house. Amen, I say to you, all the things will be forgiven the sons of men, the sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But, whatever, but whoever slanders... The Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, 
never has release, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Okay. Uh, my translation, as you see, chose slanders. Uh, blasphemy is a common translation. I actually have some thing I want to read to you about blasphemy. So chiefly, blasphemy was a charge that was chiefly... Uh, it had basically everything to do with pronouncing the sacred name of God, right? So in this particular time period, you don't say God's name, the four-lettered name, the Tetragrammaton, um, the Yud, the He, the Vav, and the He. Uh, many people think that this might be pronounced Yahweh. This is based on an Aramaic um, pronunciation of one of the Canaanite deities, which has a very similar sounding name, and that name is is Yahweh. So, uh, so people tend to think that the Tetragrammaton was pronounced as this way. Um, there's there's actually no evidence to back that up. This is essentially just a scholar's best guess, uh, only because there's a Canaanite deity that happens to have a similar sounding name. Um, but, and then of course, this is where we get. The Jehovah, right? The Yud, He, the Vav, and the He. Um, but if you apply Elohim or Adonai vowel points over that name, you get the the um, the, the Je Jehovah, which eventually medieval scribes uh, that were translating didn't realize that those are scribal notes essentially, um, and they wrote down that name thinking that that's how it was pronounced. But long story short, you don't pronounce the name, and in fact, pronouncing the name was considered the blasphemy. Uh, in fact, Mishnaically, the charge of blasphemy for me, the charge of blasphemy was for pronouncing the name. Um, and so I'm going to read to you a section here about uh, blasphemies here. Uh, the Mishnah, laying stress on the term nokev, um, declares that the blasphemer is not guilty unless he pronounces the name of God. Mishnah Sanhedrin 7.5. The Gemara goes further and extends the crime to an impious use of any words which indicate the sacred attributes of God, such as the Holy One or the Merciful One. As long as the Jewish courts exercised criminal jurisdiction, the death penalty was inflicted only upon the blasphemer who used the ineffable name. But the blasphemer of God's attributes was subject to corporal punishment. That's Sanhedrin 56a. Okay. So that, but what does this mean, right? So to blasphemy the Holy Spirit, what is he talking about here? So there's a couple of different interpretations that can happen here. One is within its context, they seem to be attributing uh, godly power to the adversary, to Hasatan, the Satan. And, and to do that is a form of blasphemy in, in, in a sense. Um yeah you're wrong you're essentially slandering god right which is why my translation uses the word slander uh you're slandering the work of god and attributing it to demons or hasatan and this is wrong this is a wrongful accusation it's it's slander uh and that's one way to interpret blasphemy using this context here and interestingly uh he only talks about blaspheming the holy spirit in this case and he doesn't mention uh, the Heavenly Father, right? Now, most New Testament scholars will actually 
to my knowledge, this is more of a circumlocution for the holy name of God. Um, that instead of saying whoever slanders and then pronouncing God's name or or even saying like the Holy One, blessed be he, or some other circumlocution that he's just chosen the Ruach HaKodesh or, or the Holy Spirit as the circumlocution for God. Because um, God is spirit and, and particularly uh, the Shekhinah, right, is probably a better idea of what the Holy Spirit is, is a concentration of of God in this world. Um, and the Holy Spirit is sort of how God, uh, understanding how the Holy Spirit works in a Jewish mind is important here. The Holy Spirit is how God operates and interacts with this world. And so to slander it is to slander God, right? To slander the agent of God, the thing that is God's power working in the world, is to slander the one who, from which it came. Uh, he does this in parables as well when he, when he um, talks about what is done to the Son is as though it is done to the Father in certain parables. Um, and so... Uh, the Holy Spirit, in this case, is probably a circumlocution for God himself. Um, that is not to say that the Holy Spirit is God in the in the more typical sense that we, uh, in modern Christendom, what I mean, right? I don't mean it that way. Uh, that is a, a theory that develops much later. When Mark was written, the Ruach HaKodesh is very likely, a um, from the Jewish context, how God is interacting with the world. And so if he's driving out demons, right, that is by, via the power of the Holy Spirit, which is God's emanation, is like an agency. Um, it is God's power working through the world. And attributing that power to demons is a type of slander, which would can be considered a type of blasphemy. Um, and so it's not... The, the, the later development of the Holy Spirit as being a person of the Trinity is, is a much later development, and it changes the way that this passage reads. So I actually have to stress here for a moment that the Trinity is not yet a thought in the book of Mark. It's not something that exists. Uh, and so we have to look at Mark through the non-Trinitarian lens because Mark, Marcos, um, the writer of the book of Mark, was not a Trinitarian. Uh, and he would have understood this from the Jewish context. So we can't, we have to remove ourselves from our 21st country, uh, century mindset, Christian mindset, and go back to that first century Jewish mindset and try to read the document the way it was meant to be understood and not how we understand it now. That's primarily why I'm doing this commentary, is to try and bring that back. Uh, and so... This, uh, this to emphasize there's a certain Jewish flavor that's being used here that over time has been so thoroughly Christianified, right, um, that Christians now sort of see this passage and they have come up with a hundred different ways that blasphemy can be defined and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and what all that means. And it's, it's very based on a more modern thought process of... Uh, of um, I believe they call it uh, uh, gradual revelation. Um, <laughs> I think that's the word. Uh, basically, yeah, oh, oh, you know, revelation of knowledge over time. Uh, but as Mark had written this, that is not how he would have understood the phrase. Uh, he very much was using the, the term Holy Spirit as a emanation of God and um, 
how God interacts with the world. The, the, the Holy Spirit is sort of, yeah, uh, God's power being used in the, in the world. The Shekhinah, uh, more or less. I, I really don't have a better way of putting that. It's kind of hard to describe it without taking up another hour of your time. Um, but uh, do you think uh, it's been 31 minutes, give or take? Um, I'm going to read this last paragraph, touch it, and then we'll be done, I promise. That way we're at the, here at the end of chapter 3, and we can start chapter 4 next week. So, 31. Then his mother and brothers uh, come, standing outside, and they sent word for him, summoning him. A crowd was sitting around, and, uh, around him, and they tell him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around them, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Right? Uh, this is very typical Jewish style of teaching. He's just using a, an opportunity. He's not denying his parents. He's not saying that, you know, I disown my parents. That's not what he's doing at all. He's just using this as an opportunity to say, These are my family, people who do the will of God. And the same is true in Christian circles even today, right? Your church is your family. Uh, that's not you disowning your real family. This is just you saying that you've created a bond, a special uh, bond with your community, and they become like family. That's that's more or less what this is, and Yeshua was just taking that opportunity to say that that's what he means. Um, uh, again, if you read many like Hasidic tales... They tell stories in this way very similarly. They'll take uh, a particular mundane situation and turn it into a opportunity for a teaching. Um, like uh, one story just immediately comes to mind of a man who had a mirror, right? And this is back when they lined the back of mirrors with silver. So it was glass and then a layer of silver behind the mirror. And so that was your how you could see a reflection with polished silver. Uh, and a little piece of the corner of the silver had worn away uh, and, and the rabbi was like uh, visiting and this man was super proud of this mirror but it had the chip of silver worn completely away from uh, just in the top corner you could barely notice it but the the rich man who owned the mirror he noticed it um, and it bothered him but he's you know he's look at this wonderful mirror the only thing that bothers me is that that top corner there you know the silver is peeled off and so uh, the, the rabbi was looking out of the window and he looked down into the street and he says i prefer this one <laughs> and the rich man's like that's not a mirror at all that's just that's glass and he says yes um it's this it's made of more or less the same materials minus the silver uh see when you put money in front of you all you can see is yourself but when there is no money in front of you i can look out into the world and i can see the people of god and everyone that i could help right so he, he just took that the chip at the mirror and the silver, and he turned it into a teaching. That that's what Yeshua is doing here. Is incredibly Jewish style of teaching, and this is in a lot of Hasidic styles of stories, right? And that's just one small example. Um, and I think, I think that's where I'm going to call it. Thirty-five minutes, kind of, kind of flew through this one. Uh, I actually had a lot more notes on certain things, and again, I should probably do an epilogue of stuff I didn't touch on. Um, uh, let's see, I got something starred here. 
Oh, speaking of mirrors, um, I'll just read this footnote and then we'll call it. <laughs> your fellow is your mirror. If your own face is clean, so will be the image you perceive. This is from the Baal Shem Tov. Uh, but you should look upon your fellow and see a blemish. It is your own imperfection that you are encountering. You are being shown what it is that you must correct within yourself. Um, so, yeah, there you go. Anyway, there's a few other stuff here. I got tons of tons of notes I just didn't have time to get to. Um, but, hey, such is life. Yeah, like I said, epilogue next time. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening to me babble for another 30 plus minutes. Um, I really appreciate your guys' time. Uh, a shout out to our Patreons who are currently listening to this. Really appreciate all you guys. Uh, your donations help make this possible. And we're actually uh, working on doing a big giveaway here uh, soon. Uh, a bookshelf starter kit. Um, and it will be available to... Uh, all Patreons will have a, a uh, an entrance into the drawing for this particular win. There will be more details to come as this gets more fleshed out, but... Um, be on the lookout for that. We do have a big giveaway coming up, a bookshelf starter kit, and there will be more details to come on, on how to get more involved with that particular giveaway. Um, but again, thanks to all the Patreon supporters. Uh, you guys rock, <laughs> uh, and you make this possible. Uh, and with that, I am going to sign off. So thank you once again. This has been a, another episode of Since Studies in the New Testament with Seamus. And I will see you guys next week in Mark chapter 4.